Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. Today we've got a bonus episode for you. We're going to be talking about David Fincher's Fight Club. The film just had its 20th anniversary this week, so we figured probably a good time to talk about the film. Um, we are old. Oh, man, so uh, <laughs> this I think Fight Club was the first DVD I ever bought. It was one of the first DVDs I ever bought because it had that really cool collector's edition package that like looked like a package of soap. Yes. And well, it looked like kind of like a bomb, like it looked like a package bomb, you know, yeah. like it was like it was sort of kind of aggressive. And it was also one of those first like feature rich blue, you know, not Blu-rays, DVDs like it was you could go deep on that film. Yeah, um, it really took advantage of the format. And now these days, like you get Gone Girl on Blu-ray and it just has an audio commentary and that's it, which makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. Fincher used to have like the best like home releases. Yeah, if you haven't seen his feature-length documentaries on uh, especially The Social Network and actually The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo one is really good. Um, I, I, I would... By I, David Pryor. Yeah, I really like uh, the Benjamin Button. The, the Benjamin Button making of is yeah. longer than the movie. Yeah, that's the best one, I think, that they've done. Um, and it's like the first like 30 to 40 minutes of that movie are about the project before Fincher even signed on. So it's a like Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall talking about all the various other iterations of the movie. And then it just gets in the nitty gritty of filming and everything. And ugh, treasure trove. So like if you're if you've cut the cord and you're just watching everything on streaming now, believe that there are still very like valuable and great Blu-rays out there and these are some of them that you should have. For sure. Uh, but today we'll be talking about Fight Club. We're going to talk about the film's legacy, the film, how the film has been misinterpreted over the years. And uh, then we'll finish things up with reader hot takes because we have a new one this week. And that's just a reminder. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes along with your hottest movie or TV related take. And we will Give discuss it on. Yeah, and we'll discuss it. We need uh, the takes. So Fight Club is one of my favorite films, and it's a it's the kind of film that I figured there's certain movies like, oh, I grew out of it. Like there's certain films yeah. where it's like I really liked them a lot at a certain age. And then I got older and I was like, OK, this isn't as good. Like for me, like I was very much into Kevin Smith movies when I was, you know, in my late teens. But nowadays I'm like, I have no patience. Even, even like, like I think clerks is amusing enough and chasing Amy has some high points and, but I'm not like, yeah, everything Kevin Smith does is awesome. Cause I grew up <laughs> and he hasn't <laughs> apparently. I mean, he seems all, you know, it's all well and good, but you know, uh, I don't think even, I think even Smith would admit he hasn't really pushed himself as a filmmaker. And there are movies that grow with you and movies that don't. I feel the same way about Kevin Smith. I was actually having this conversation with someone the other day, not to go on a tangent. Um, but they they saw the Jay and Silent Bob reboot, and they were like, yeah, it's just the same as the other one. And I was like, ugh. And, I, and then I was thinking, I was like, I think I liked like I liked Jason Amy a lot. I was obsessed with Dogma. I really liked Clerks. But I have not returned to those movies in so long. And my memory of them is very juvenile. Well, and they're very juvenile films. Like, that's the thing. Like, yeah. they're very of a time. And I think even in the way that they're juvenile, it's hard to relate to them anymore. They're not like they're not like a coming-of-age film in any sense. They're just sort of a snapshot of a time in your life. And once you leave it behind, you kind of don't have the patience for it anymore. 
So that yeah. we should probably do a Kevin Smith podcast at some point, but that would involve. I mean, we've <laughs> seen his. Rewatching them. I don't want to. I never want to watch Yoga Hosers again. <laughs> <laughs> what about Tusk? Never want to watch that again. <laughs> um, but back to Fight Club. Uh, Fight Club has, I feel like, it's really aged very well, and in fact, in some ways, feels kind of ahead of its time. Talking about toxic masculinity in a way that wasn't really being explored in 1999. Um, And I think part of that is because by virtue of being ahead of the conversation, and it should be noted that Fight Club is based on the book of the same name by Chuck Palahniuk, um, that, you know, what it's talking about, sort of this sort of, not dying masculinity, but sort of this masculinity that has nowhere to go in a post-capitalist society where you're just supposed to your job now as a man is just to buy things um, can leave you feeling lost and disassociated. And I think where fight club trips people up a little bit is that the problem it identifies is very real. It's not that like the narrator slash Jack or whatever you want to call him. I always call him the narrator. Um, The narrator's issue isn't like it's not a fake issue like he's it's not like he there's some movies that start out and you're like what like this dude doesn't really have a problem like i don't know how to balance my work and my family like okay just spend some more time with your kids this is not a real thing um but for the narrator it's you know he can't he has insomnia and the only way he can have and he's just completely emotionally cut off from the world and this emotional detachment sort of uh, coincides with this corporatization and consumer-driven world in which he lives. And that those are real things that can leave you feeling sort of disconnected from the world. The problem is that the solution the film presents is not a solution. It's a false path because Tyler Durden is not offering a real solution. What, he's, what he says sounds good, but then the more you follow it, the more childish in and toxic you see you can see it as it's not like that tyler durden has some good ideas it's that tyler durden actually has no good ideas but he says them with a lot of confidence and you just idea and i stand by it what it's a good idea and i stand by it okay (laughs) but like you know it's you know so you can have you know i feel like I'm sure there's someone out there who's got in a tattoo that says, it's only after you've lost everything that you're free to do anything. And I'm like, <laughs> that's not a thing. It is like, <laughs> it's a great idea. If you don't think about it for more than five seconds, like, yes, things tie you down. But it's like, and again, it's not like Tyler Durden is like, he knows the right things to say, obviously, because he is spoiler alert for no, everyone who doesn't know how Fight Club <laughs> ends. Tyler Durden and the narrator are the same person. He knows the right thing to say, which is like the things you own end up owning you. And I think that's a relatable thing that, oh, I'm tied into this workaday world to accumulate stuff and it makes me feel morally empty. But again, Tyler's not offering a solution to that. Like he doesn't understand how to offer complexities or what does it mean to find something that's emotionally and spiritually fulfilling. His solution is destruction and violence, which is honestly what a small boy would do. (laughs) Um, But it's portrayed as wisdom because Tyler Durden says it with a great deal of confidence. It's, and so I wrote, I wrote an article this past week and you can see it on the site about how I think fight club is misinterpreted where what it's uh, 
you know, the, the philosophy that Tyler Durden espouses is not being celebrated. It's being condemned. But because David Fincher is such a captivating filmmaker and also we need to follow the narrator's mindset and see why he would be lured in by Tyler, the film has to make those initial arguments more appealing than they actually are. Um, the film can't really afford to judge Tyler until the narrator himself turns on Tyler. Uh, and that sort of can make it a little harder to distinguish that everything Tyler says is bullshit. What was your first reaction to the movie when you first saw it? Did, did all of that hit you at once? Were you like, ah, oh, yes, I understand. This is about masculinity and... Actually, it's not really until I've gotten older that uh, that stuff, and I think that's also has to do with, you know, our current climate and how masculinity is being reappraised and, and reexamined. Um, I should note that someone spoiled the ending for me back in 99. Oh, so no. That, yeah, that was unfortunate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like any good movie, any good movie that if, if you know the twist and the film still works, that's a good movie. Like I, I know how the sixth sense ends, but it's still a good film. So it's not like fight club is, if you know the twist, the movie is ruined, but I didn't have that satisfaction of like, Oh, they're the same person. Um, but I will say, uh, what, what really grabbed me on those initial viewings of fight club was sort of, I think not so much the, the masculinity part, but the, the alienation of it. And I think this, I think the, the comedy of it, I think the dark comedy in fight club is really firing on all cylinders. And it, the way it sort of strikes that balance is, is really impressive. But I don't think I was ever like, yeah, Tyler Durden is, is, is the hero. (laughs) Like, like eventually you're like, Oh, this guy's fucking nuts. And this is not a solution. Um, And I think, I think on those initial viewings, it's like, Oh, this is about a cult rather than the the critique of of masculinity. Yeah, it goes to some weird places. I mean, I was similar. I was gosh, uh 13 when Fight Club came out and obviously I didn't see it. I don't think I saw it in theaters because it was a bomb. Like no one no one was really talking about it that much uh beyond kind of the controversy. The, the, yeah, the marketing didn't know what to do with it at all. No. So I eventually caught up with it. I believe it was on I'm sure it was on DVD or VHS uh at Blockbuster. Um and then became obsessed with it. But I, you know, like you, I was I was a teenage boy. I was not necessarily I think Fincher does his job a little too well. Like Tyler Durden is crazy alluring. Um because it's from the point the film is told from the point of view of the narrator. And so the narrator is alerted by Tyler and you as a viewer are alerted by Tyler. And it's not until towards the end of the film that you start to realize that Tyler is fucking insane. Uh and everything he's saying and doing is stupid. Um but I mean, uh, so like, I understood that Tyler was bad and what he was doing was wrong, um, and I understood like be I started to feel uncomfortable, and I think that's kind of what I enjoyed about it, um, and I think that's what I mean when I say Fincher did his job too well, is that you are put in the shoes of the narrator, and when things start getting a little cuckoo, and you know the narrator is starting to get a little uncomfortable with the increasingly violent tactics of Tyler and uh, you know, this cult is like growing and getting bigger. Like you as a viewer start to feel a little bit overwhelmed, but then you also feel, I remember my first viewing experience. You feel like you're like, you're like, did I miss something? Like this happened really quickly and it feels like time has dropped out or time has been lost. And then you get to that reveal and it's like, Oh shit. Okay. 
So like the narrator lost time when these things were happening. So you, the viewer, also lost time when these things were happening. I remember that being a really cool aspect of the film. Um, but I don't think it was, it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I fully understood and appreciated the the brilliance of um, the commentary that Fincher was making about what it means means to be a man and masculinity and about kind of the commercialization uh, of the world. And like, you know, all of those sayings and all of the quick flashes and all of that was kind of a fuck you and not a like, hey, cool, look at these really cool things. Right. Yeah. I think the film, again, part of the reason I think it's aged well is because there is a lot going on with it and it's stuff you understand as you get older. And so, but, but I think even as, as a younger viewer, I think I was, I know it's never like, yeah, I should start a fight club. <laughs> like that's, <laughs> that's the wrong, like that's not a, th- but people did, people did, they did. Like, they're like, Oh <laughs> no, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't get the point of the movie, <laughs> which is, you know, the, the point of the movie is not like a pro fight club argument. <laughs> No, um, and I think that's especially potent in um, – gosh, what's Jared Leto's character's name? Angel? Angel. Yeah, uh, when he gets the shit beat out of him um, because you feel bad afterwards. like you, And you're like, oh, like this is kind – like this is real violence. Like this is very, very violent. Yeah, well, there's there's a dark side to every – to all – to this vi- – like the thing is, is like the violence is originally presented as cathartic but really – Again, as everything that that Tyler's doing, it's just self-indulgent and destructive. Yeah. And so when the narrator, you know, beats the, the the hell out of Angel, it's self-indulgent and it's not cathartic. He doesn't feel better about it afterwards. He just no. wanted to destroy something beautiful. Like it's just anger and rage and it goes, you know, it has to go somewhere. And this is not a healthy way of dealing with it. And the the healthy way to deal with it would be intimacy and honesty and opening yourself up to someone. And that person is Marla and he can't do it. Like that's, that's the problem is like, he doesn't realize, Oh, I'm in love with Marla. And so he, he thinks that he hates her (laughs) um, when really she's probably the only person who understands him. Yeah. I love the character of Marla. Um, She's just so fucking insane. Uh, yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I think like Marla. I think one of the the the, the best things about Marla is that she is not a likable character either. <laughs> like that. Like, I, she's not some sort of manic pixie dream girl. That's yeah. like I'm here to fix all your problems. She is also Which has was super a lot prevalent of- at this time. Yes. Like that's the other thing to talk about is that the time that Fight Club came out. I mean, Garden State was a few years later. Um, but it was but coming. It was coming down it, the pike. Like Elizabeth Town was 2000. Um, then you had. Yeah, or no, Gar- I think Elizabeth Town was a little later because. When was Almost Famous? Was that 2002? Oh, no, you're right. Almost Famous was 2000. Elizabeth Town, I think, yeah. was 05. But it was coming down the pike. Yeah. Like, we were about to get a bunch of these. So, like, in retrospect, Fight Club feels like it's almost a commentary on that manic pixie dream girl. Yes. Um, Even though it came out before. Right. Yeah, no, but it's not like Marla is here to fix his problems. It's just it's clearly that they're right for each other, but he can't his his enemy really isn't even her it's intimacy and he can't do that and so instead it's covered up by the false bonds of fight club and this violence and then which escalates to to project mayhem and again these things you know and then it just takes on a life of its own <laughs> you know yeah. where they're like the his name is robert paulson <laughs> <laughs> and you're like what the fuck's going on what here? the fuck yeah i mean it's a very dark commentary on how quickly these things can spin out of control and how 
you know, lost the modern man is. And I think some, you know, some people may roll their eyes like, oh, poor men. But I think there is something to be said in terms of that I think is vital for both genders is that we have, you know, these men who don't know how to understand their emotions. And they, you know, the film has a scene where the narrator talks about his father and the father isn't mentioned with warmth or affection. It's just, what do I do now? And the father seems largely indifferent to those choices. And I think to me, that's the most, that's one of the most important scenes in the film where they're talking about, you know, we're a generation of men raised by women. I wonder if another woman is really what we need. And that's Tyler talking. Um, and it's a rejection of the feminine, but really that, that being able to, to access your emotions is, is sort of the healthier road. And it's where the narrator ultimately ends up rather than I will punch my problems away. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is fight club came out. I mean, then like nowadays, like the, the teen idols are, um, people like Robert Pattinson, Timothy Chalamet, Harry Styles, who are unafraid of embracing femininity and like kind of blurring gender lines uh, when it comes to like what they wear, how they look, what they're doing. Um, But in the nineties we were coming off like the eighties were like insanely macho uh, with all of the eighties action movies, Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the nineties was kind of finding the way through that. And even Pitt himself was like the pretty boy, um, you know, before then like interview with the vampire and stuff like that. And so, uh, and I think the Matrix does this as well as like coming to terms with like what is masculinity in the digital age with the arrival of the internet and where everyone is connected. Um, and you have people who are kind of connecting for the first time across uh, chat rooms and stuff like that. Uh, and just kind of confronting like masculinity and what are uh, what is masculinity supposed to look like and, uh, you know, how am I fitting or not fitting into the norms of the culture of the day? And that's kind of what this was born out of was, you know, these men uh, who are mad at the world because their lives are not what they want. I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of the men that are in, uh, you know, starting in these fight clubs are, you know, uh, unhappy with their lives and unhappy with their place in their lives. And they decide to take it out on the world instead of looking inward. Right, yeah, and I think that there's sort of, again, the the frustration that Tyler is tapping into is, you know, his trick is that he, he talks about something real but offers something false. So he is right that there's a generation of men who were promised to be, you know, movie, movie gods and millionaires and rock stars, and that never happened, and now they're very pissed off about it. But rather than being like, I'm not entitled to any of this shit— it's, I am entitled to this. And then since I didn't get it, I'm going to take it out on the world. And so again, Tyler identifies a real problem, but doesn't offer a real solution to it. And I think Brad Pitt's casting in this is, is brilliant. And I've said it before. I think David Fincher is one of the best casting directors working today. Uh, and Pitt was coming off. I mean, we talked about this a little bit when we did our, our Pitt podcast and talked about Ad Astra, but he was coming off a time where he was, uh, you know, he was the pretty boy. He's uh, said now that he was really unhappy with uh, how he was used in an interview with the vampire and that he was just used to be like a pretty face. He did movies like Legends of the Fall and The Devil's Own, Seven Years in Tibet. And the movie he did right before this was Meet Joe Black, which you uh, described in great detail. and <laughs> sounds hilarious. Um, it's but- hilarious. It's not three hours. 
<laughs> but Seven, uh, you know, Pitt has said that Fincher kind of changed his career when they worked together on Seven. And Pitt was a huge deal when they made Seven to the point that when he signed on, he contractually was able to put in the contract that they could not change the ending. Um, noting that uh, the person who dies had to stay dead. And Pitt's character had to uh, do the thing that happens at the end of the movie. Can we just tell people? I think it's Seven. We can tell people what happens in Seven. It's a brand new film. (laughs) (laughs) Seven was spoiled to me by Entertainment Weekly. I had, uh, they had like the biggest twists of like, the biggest movie twists of all time or the biggest movie twist of the 90s or something like that. And it was like Gwyneth Paltrow's head in a box in Seven. And I was like, huh. It's like, I wonder what that means. (laughs) I had it. Spoiled, spoiled for me intentionally because there was a girl in my class and I was 11 when the film, when seven came out yeah, and I was like, there's no way my, my mom is ever going to let me see seven. I may as well just know how it ends because I'm not going to get to see this movie for a while. And I was right. (laughs) So, you know, I didn't really mind at age 11 being like, ah, all right. Decapitation, eh? (laughs) Yeah. I eventually rented that, uh, at Blockbuster, obviously. Um, but yeah, like, so like, you know, seven, I think they worked together and, and Fincher was able to play, uh, not necessarily an quote unquote unlikable protagonist, but a protagonist who does things that the audience is not on board with. Um, and that goes right up to the ending. Um, and so in fight club, you have Fincher playing with Brad Pitt's persona as, you know, he's the sexiest man alive and people's, you know, most wanted or whatever. Uh, people's most wanted. Is that a thing? That's not a thing. That? You just made that up. It's that people's, up. It sec- it's people magazine's sexiest man alive. <laughs> most wanted man. <laughs> Sex- it just makes sound of like a criminal. He's the most wanted. <laughs> sexiest, most wanted men. Um, but uh, like using that persona when Tyler Durden is so alluring, and then I love how you had that switch when he realizes that Tyler is himself. Tyler's in- entire aesthetic changes. He shaves his head. He's wearing that gigantic fur coat. Um, he's anarchic. Like he just looks anarchic. Yeah, I mean it's a really clever shift onto Pitt's public persona, and I, I, you know, I think that it's hard to imagine any other actor playing any of these roles. I mean, the, the, again, like you said, Fincher is an expert at casting and I think everyone here is just perfect. But I think Pitt, especially you needed someone who was sort of renowned for being handsome, but also could sort of go to that dark side um, and really bring that to the character. And yet, do you know who was almost cast as Tyler Durden instead? Will Smith, Russell Crowe. Ooh, that's no good. <laughs> One of the producers wanted Russell Crowe. The other producer wanted Brad Pitt, and they got Brad Pitt. Um, and then for the narrator role, uh, Fincher wanted Ed Norton, but the studio wanted Matt Damon. Um, and Norton was, like, around this time, Norton was, like, hot shit because uh, he was coming off of uh, Primal Fear and People versus Larry Flint. Uh, it's Primal Fear, right? Yeah, yeah, Primal Fear. Not Fear. Fear is the Mark Wahlberg rapey one that is not cool. Um uh, so Norton was like a huge deal and everyone wanted him, but like, he wasn't like he, he, everyone wanted him for like their prestige projects, but not necessarily to like lead, uh, be like a leading man. And so, um, although I think at the time he was also under consideration for talent, Mr. Ripley. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, Fincher got Norton, um, but they were considering people like, uh, Matt Damon and stuff like that. And, um, his first choice for Marlo was Janine Garofalo, but she was not cool with the um, uh, sexual nature of the film. Mm. And uh, mm. 
passed on it, but then he went to Helena Bonham Carter. So, yeah, I mean, it. I again, it all came together really well, and I think, I think the film endures because it it's it has a message that's worth saying, and I think honestly, also the direction. Like, I mean, it it uses CG really well, like the way. Fincher sort of is able to sort of take his camera into impossible places like waste baskets and wiring and things like that. But in a way that doesn't has it's, it, it's aged well, it doesn't feel like, Oh, it's so cheesy. It took me a long time to understand that that sex scene is CG. The characters are not real. Um, they created CG versions of Helena Bonham Carter and uh, Brad Pitt. That was just, you know, Fincher doing his thing back in 1999. Yep. <laughs> was already pushing the limits of uh, what computer technology could do. Um, I'm, I'm a little, I, I think if Fincher could get away with it, Fincher would make an entirely CGI film. Like if he's oh, like, yeah. like if he's, if he was, someone's like, here is unlimited money on, on an art, like you can be rated whatever you want, make a film. He would make it completely CG. It would have, I'm so he surprised could have total... he hasn't done an animated film yet. Although I'm sure he would drive animators crazy. Well, you know, and that's the thing. He was attached to the goon for a yeah. while, which was supposed to be animated. Um, not to direct it, but just only as a producer. But yeah, I'm surprised he hasn't decided to just make an out-and-out animated film. And I think that's because the market is so small for an R-rated animated film. Yeah. Like the cost of it would be too astronomical. But then again, hey, maybe Netflix will be like, Tear, have more money. <laughs> yeah. Nothing but money. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, Fight Club came at a curious time in his career. Uh, I mean, Seven obviously is what kind of blew him up, and uh, everyone loved him. And right after Seven, he did the game with Michael Douglas, which I think was received okay. Uh, it, it was wasn't received like a well, but not a, it wasn't like a hit like Seven was a hit. No, and so, but he was still he still had a lot of goodwill, and so that landed him the the Fight Club job, which uh, some of the other directors they had considered for it were. Uh, interesting to say the least. I think uh, Peter Jackson was one, Brian Singer, Danny Boyle, um, and then eventually Fincher got it. And I think I think you needed someone who had that really strong hold on like what the film actually meant and the the satire of it. Um, yeah, you need someone who's kind of. I mean, it Fight Club. It's hard to see it with other people because it's so Fincher's pers- personality, which is just sort yeah. of he's. He's he's a bit of an asshole, but he's also really funny. Yes, <laughs> and so that that's David Fincher. Yeah, uh, and then obviously, like it was a disaster. Like the the first test screening, the Fox executives were just absolutely shaken. Um, I think one of them like yelled at Fincher about it. He was fine. Like he was like, "This is the movie I told you I was gonna make, and I made it." Um, and gosh, there there were a lot of really good quotes in that. But... One of my favorite stories is so in in the film after Marla and Tyler have just had he's like ah oh, the shit that came out of this girl's mouth and in the finished film she's like I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Yeah, the line was originally I want to have your abortion. <laughs> and the Fox exec said you can't put that in the film. And he's like okay, but whatever I replace it with. That's what we're going with. And she's like, fine, it can't be worse than I, I want to have your abortion. And she's like, oh, that is worse. <laughs> and he got to keep it in. Yes. And they released the film and it was uh, just a massive bomb. Um, and I don't, I don't even remember it make, making 
Like I very specifically remember the Matrix making a huge cultural impact in 1999, um, and a number of other films, but I don't really remember. Fight Club was just one of those movies that came out and went away really quickly. Yeah, it didn't make a splash in 99. In 99, it was like people, some people saw it and it started to get a little buzz, but I think it really wasn't until DVD the following year that people really like, it started to find its audience. That people were like, oh, this is what the movie is. Because you saw the ads and the ads were like, mischief, mayhem, soap. And you're like, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) Like, I don't know what that fucking means. Yeah. And that explains why, I mean, Fincher's next movie is Panic Room, which is kind of a safer bet. And I I don't know for sure. And I know that he was developing a number of other projects at the time, but it feels like he needed to make something that would convince studios to continue, like, giving him money to make movies. Um, And Panic Room, like, by his own admission, is is just a date movie. Like, he was just trying to make a really good date movie. He wasn't necessarily trying to... Uh, go deep on subtext or really push any significant buttons. Uh, And it was a tough shoot. I mean, it had its own problems in that he was like constructing this puzzle inside a house uh, in, in terms of how he was moving the camera and where he was putting the camera. And and he doesn't have the advantage of like the CG tools aren't where they need to be. Like there's a, if you look at the making of feature, there's the scene in the film where they're trying to come up from beneath the panic room. And so they're, taking a sledgehammer to the ceiling. Well, every time they do that and they, you know, Fincher likes to do a lot of takes, you have to get a new ceiling in there every time. (laughs) Like there's no CG ceiling to hit. It's always a real ceiling that has to be destroyed every time. Well, and one of my favorite stories from it is that Darius Kanji, who shot uh, seven, um, showed up to set and started like he was supposed to be the cinematographer and eventually just left because Fincher had already mapped out every single shot of the movie. And he was like, what is my job here? Right. <laughs> Which is fine. So. Yeah, no, it's uh, again, those Fincher, the Fincher movies for the most part have really rich making of features worth, worth checking out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think fight club is just, it's real. Like I, I understand why it stuck around. Um, but again, I'm, I always, I, it's the kind of films like, oh yeah, I'm angry and in my, in my twenties and like this corporate world doesn't understand me. And I figured like I'd age out of it, but honestly, I find, I find fight club to be more profound as I get older. Cause I think it's not so much this anti-capitalist film. I think that's part of it. I think that is in its DNA, but I think it's ultimately a love story between the narrator and Marla and sort of putting childish things away. And I think that's why it works when you get older. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a movie I haven't revisited a ton. Um, I watched it a lot when I was younger, but uh, I, I mean, I watched it, I think about a year ago and it still held up tremendously. Well, the audio commentary on it is really funny and fun too. Uh, And I think it's one of Brad Pitt's most fun performances too. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, anything else to to add on Fight Club? Uh, I don't think so. I just think people should give it another watch. Uh, first read Matt's essay on what it's really about and then go watch it again uh, with that in mind. And I think uh, it'll kind of open it up um, to uh, kind of a whole new horizon. Yes. All right. Well, with that, let's let's dive into reader hot takes. What do we have this week? Uh, so we have a reader hot take from Coach Delaney Six. Uh, who says, Hi, Matt and howdy, Adam. Love the pod. One of my favorite episodes you did was actually not about a film, but a TV series. 
your episode about The Office was so good I had to keep uploading and play it for my fellow Office-loving friends on a road trip. Anyways, even after that, uh, thank you for that. Um, even after that, here's my hot take. Parks and Rec is the better series. I love both series, especially the main characters as the shows go on, save for Parks and Rec Season 1, which is pretty brutal all the way around. But it's the supporting character development and involvement of Parks and Rec that put it over the top for me. Anyways, thanks for doing such a great job with the pod. I'll hang up and listen. P.S. Thanks for fixing the audio. Listening to you both speak simultaneously was exhausting. We apologize again. Yes, we apologize. It has been fixed. I've down... I basically... There was an update to the call recording software that caused everything to go haywire, and I've basically downgraded to the older version so that everything should be okay. Yeah. Um, but as as to this hot take, uh, I agree with it, to be honest. I But I will say this. I will say Parks and Recreation is the better show. I think The Office is the more rewatchable show. Um, like Parks and Rec, it, yeah, the, the, the listener is absolutely right. It, it, it takes the characters to stronger places. Um, it, it makes you feel better about the world, about public service. It's just, it feels hopeful and inspiring, but still has really good jokes. But I just find The Office to be really, I find it more quotable. It's a world that I find I'm more comfortable in. Between the two shows, the one I want to have on in the background is The Office. Because it's just, I find that it's it, the way it rolls along is just, um, I, I, it's it's so charmingly low stakes that I can just kind of roll with it. Whereas, because I am genuinely invested in the stakes of Parkinson and Rec, it holds my attention more. So I don't really want to have it on in the background as much. I want to actively pay attention to it. Yeah, I uh, I would agree. I think that. Uh... Parks and Rec is the better show on the whole, even though season one is not great. I uh, like going back to it though, having really loved the show. I think season one is an easier watch uh, in Parks and Rec, but I also don't think season one of The Office is all that great either. I don't think that show finds its stride until season two. Um, but and just in terms of overall quality, once Michael leaves, as we talked about on the podcast, I think pretty extensively, like there's something missing. It somewhat regains its footing in the final season, um, but. The Andy as the boss stuff is just bad. Uh, he's not a good character to be the lead of the show or the boss, which I think is why they just kind of like sent him away for a while. Well, they also sent that... him away because he was filming The Hangover too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I would. I think I would have to agree. I, I have. I will say I have rewatched The Office more often than I've rewatched Parks and Rec, but that's mostly because I think Parks and Rec is a little more serialized than The Office is. Mm, yeah. So The sure. Office is a little bit more like. Um, contained like you feel really satisfied after an episode whereas like if you're watching Parks and Rec you're like oh crap I forgot it's this storyline like I I really want to watch how this plays out and see how this goes or you'll be drawn like Parks and Rec has good standalone episodes but it's always in the middle of something larger that's happening like uh, you know Leslie's running for office or uh, you know she and Ben are you know starting to get together Um, whereas The Office does have serialized storytelling but they have more bottle episodes than not yeah, it's easier to just sort of pop in. Like, there are a bunch of storylines running through um, the Office episode Dinner Party, but I can just pop on Dinner Party at any time because yes. it's fucking brilliant. <laughs> yes. It's hilarious. So, yes, that's that's where I stand on the, the whole The Office slash Parks and Rec debate. Agreed. I am glad both exist. Yes, same. Um, all right. Well, thank you all for listening. If you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.